So um, it can happen sometimes that uh, in in the midst of um, or in the process of looking at the details of Scripture, which uh, is what we do and what we want to do, um, sometimes we can lose track of context, and um, and you know, and once we lose track of context, now we don't know if what we're saying or looking at is what the the, the Holy Spirit intended when He laid the things down, you know. And um, one of the things that I love about the book of Romans is uh, how incredibly clear the context is uh, from start to finish. It just follows a very uh, um, progressive and and consistent line and doesn't change too much. Uh, It's all on one theme. It's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just by way of a very brief reminder, you know, in the first three chapters, uh, what what the author and what really what the Holy Spirit has laid out for us is is definitive, conclusive uh, proof that everyone who who lives as a descendant of Adam and Eve is a sinner. That uh, it doesn't matter what background or walk of life you come from. It doesn't matter your environment, uh, the privilege that you've grown up in. It doesn't matter the morality that was instilled in you by your parents and that you seek to live out, uh, how good or bad you are. None of that matters. Uh, Everyone, everyone, a descendant of Adam and Eve is a sinner and therefore is born separated from God, is born alienated from him under his wrath. Uh, a child of hell, destined for hell, everyone comes into this world on the first day a lost person. And that's just truth. That's just what it is. That's what we inherited from uh, our our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so Paul uh, and the Holy Spirit proved that in the first three chapters. But then at the end of chapter 3, we come to a point where Paul makes this point now or, or introduces this truth that there is a righteousness that comes from God that's given to us apart from anything that we do to earn it ourselves. And that is an, an enormous hurdle for, for, for us to get over in our understanding and, in, and even just to, to comprehend exactly what that means. Because we live in a world where everything, it's probably one of the most universally known, accepted principles that everything in this world comes on a performance reward basis. If I do this, then I receive this. I mean, that's just universally true everywhere on the planet. And it's true from the earliest uh, days of our understanding. We grow up under our parents, right? And we learn that if we do this, I'm rewarded with this. If I do this, <laughs> the consequences are this. And if we, we learn that if we do things right, then we'll be in their pleasure, we'll be rewarded by them, and, uh, and life is grand. Then we get into school, and everything that we learn in school, that if you apply yourself, if you learn these things, if you do what's right, then you'll be rewarded. You'll be praised. <laughs> you, you know, you'll be given the things that you, 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 know, you want in, in life, and we're taught that in school. Then we move from school, we go into the college world, you know, and if we're in that elite level of academics or of uh, athletics, you know, we could even get a scholarship. We're rewarded for our performance. And then uh, hopefully we're building a resume. So by the end of college, we come into the career world and now we begin to make lists of all the things that we did 
and the rewards we received for doing those things. And that becomes our value. And we're measured based upon what we did in order to have what we earned. And all of life revolves on this truth on every level and in every relationship. If I do, then I get. Well, now you have this first century Jewish rabbi, member of the Sanhedrin, convert to Christianity, who has now just said something that is extremely contradictory to that principle (laughs) that we all have lived by our entire lives. And not only is it contradictory in that he said, well, you're going to be given something that you didn't earn, but it's contradictory on the highest and most critical level that you can imagine on things concerning my relationship with God and my relationship with eternal life and heaven. And what he has said to us is he said that there is a righteousness, a declaration of innocence, a forgiveness of my sins that is going to be given to me apart from anything that I can do to earn it or or, or achieve it or deserve it. And it's something that's just going to be given to me by God. Now, when I hear that, it ignites hope in me because somewhere inside I realize I can never earn that, you know. So it ignites hope, but it also ignites a whole lot of doubt because it's so contradictory to human reason. It's contradictory to the universality of human experience in the world. You know, that's just not the way things work. I get something if I earn it, not just because. But Paul said this, it's Romans 3.21. He said, there is a righteousness that is given to us apart from the works of the law. And then in in verse 28 of chapter 3, as he comes to the conclusion, he says, Therefore we conclude, he said, that righteousness, that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So the conclusion that he has landed us at here at the end of chapter 3 is that we can be justified, that means innocent, righteous, before a holy God apart from the deeds of the law. That is anything that we can do to earn it or perform it. Now, I'm thankful for that truth, and I'm thankful that it's in the Bible. But if I'm a first century Roman, and I'm reading this letter from the Apostle Paul, and I don't know the Apostle Paul from Adam. I I mean, I have respect for him, for his reputation and what he's done. But as far as I'm concerned, as a first century Roman, you know, I don't know I'm reading scripture. So I need a little bit more. You're going to have to, you know, if you're going to say something as huge as what you're saying right now, I need a little bit more than just you saying it in order for me to know that it's true. I need some scriptural backing. I need some kind of a precedent. I need to hear this from God himself. If I'm going to believe this and I'm going to live my life in the confidence that I'm forgiven of my sins apart from anything that I do to earn it, I need to know that this is from God. And so Paul knew, he was a smart guy, he knew that this would be going on in the mind of his readers and and of his audience when he would say these things. So what he does now in chapter 4 is he reaches as far back in Old Testament history as he can, and he proves that this has always been the way that God has operated with people. 
This isn't something new. This isn't a second-hand thought wherein God said, well, I tried the law thing and that didn't work out. You know, and and so now we're going to do the grace thing because, and so sorry to all those Old Testament people that tried so hard and and never could do it, but now I understand how to do this. It's great, you know. That's not the idea at all. Paul says, no, no, no. He's God, and he doesn't change. And if he changed, then he's not God because he's not perfect, or he's God, but maybe he's not perfect. But he is perfect. He is God, and he does not change. Meaning that if righteousness is given and not earned, then righteousness has always been given and not earned. And to prove it, he goes as far back as he can to Abraham. Because it's the first place where it's revealed and shown that righteousness comes not by my earning it, but by God giving it. And that's what he does now in chapter 4, as he now uses Abraham as proof that righteousness is given and not earned. So notice with me in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, he's the subject now of our examination, as pertaining to the flesh, that is in the days of his physical existence, has found. What is it that Abraham found or discovered or you could say was founded or the foundational principle existed in his life. What did he find? For, verse 2, if Abraham were justified, again, justified means to be declared righteous, if he were justified by works, meaning by his effort, his performance, his ability to keep the commandments of God and to walk in the will of God, if Abraham were justified by the things that he did, then... He has whereof to glory, that is to boast. He could boast, he could brag, of course, not before God. So if, if Abraham's righteousness or salvation or the fact that he's in heaven were, were the byproduct of his works, then he could look at all of us and say, hey guys, if you were as good as me, if you just do what I did, if you're as holy as I am, then you could be right with God too. Just mark my life as a pattern of Good works and a good example, and there you go. So we look at the the works of Abraham. What do we find? We find that he was a liar. (laughs) We find that he really messed up his marriage. You read carefully in the text, you find that at the time his wife died, he was living like 100 miles away from her. They were separated, you know. There was big problems in his family, you know. He gave birth to Ishmael out of doubt and, and taking his life into his own hands. He was far from perfect. It wasn't by works whereby Abraham was declared to be justified. 4, verse 3, he says, what does the scripture say? How do, what does the Bible say about Abraham's salvation? It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, if you have a pen and you're taking notes, I want you to circle in your Bible, if you're comfortable with writing in your Bible, you know, I am, I don't find any problem with that, you know, but I want you to circle that word counted, however it's translated in in the, the, the text that you're reading, okay? Because that word right there is the key or the, 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 the hinge pin upon which this whole chapter swings. He's going to use that word in the Greek. It's a great word, the, the word uh, there in the Greek, I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget it, but it's such a cool, oh, it's lajidzomahi. 
It's a good one, right? Lajidzomahi is the word in the Greek. And what it means is, it means counted, imputed, or reckoned. Accounted, imputed, or reckoned. So notice it in the verse again. He says, for what saith the scripture? For Abraham believed God and it was counted. Lajidzomahi. Imputed, accounted, reckoned. Unto him for righteousness. Now what does it mean for something to be counted or imputed or reckoned? It means that it is a status of your account. So in other words, if you were in arrears say on your mortgage or your electric bill, and the power company or the bank contacted you, and they were to say to you that the status of your account right now is that it's in arrears. You're, you're late. You're delinquent on your payment. You haven't made it. And thus, you're in a bad standing. You are not justified right now in the eyes of, of our, our accounting department. And you go, oh, oh, they're calling, you know, in collections and the whole thing, you know. Now, unbeknownst to you, your wife goes or somebody goes and they pay that bill. And you call the next day and you say, I just want to settle up on my account. And they, they look things up and they, they notice that there's some transaction in this place. And they say, your status is paid in full. Your status is up to date. Now, it's been imputed or written over your account that everything is as it should be. Okay? Now, that's kind of the idea here is that with God, we have this account. It's a sin account. And when there's sin in the account, we are unjustified. We are in arrears. We're delinquent. We're off. And for us to be right, sin has to be removed. So what he's saying right now is that Abraham believed God. And when Abraham believed God, that is, had faith in God, his account went from delinquent to righteous. And it had nothing to do with anything else. Now, where in the scripture does it say that? It's in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, God came to Abraham and he reaffirmed to him a promise that he had already given him in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he had given him the promise that you're going to be the father of many nations. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed in you. And there's no, there's no numbering of your descendants and I'm going to give you this land. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham. Well, some time goes by and, you know, Abraham kind of has some ups and downs and there's no progress in terms of the fulfillment of this promise. And Abraham was going through a real struggle and God met with him the second time. And God said to Abraham in chapter 15, he said, don't worry, Abraham, I'm your shield, I'm your reward, I've got things in control. And Abraham expressed some doubt and he said, God, I understand that you're with me and for me, but I have no children. And right now, if I were to die today, my entire estate would go to a servant who's not even in my family. So how is this promise going to come to pass? And God replied to that doubt by taking Abraham outside. He said, Abraham, look up at the sky and look at the stars. Abraham looks up. He says, if you can count those stars, that's going to be the number of your direct descendants that are going to come from your loins. Can you count that number? Count the sand on the seashore, Abraham. If you can number the sand, then you'll be able to number your descendants. And Abraham's response to that word that came from God that day is that it says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. That the thing that moved Abraham's account 
from being a sinner alienated from God, hellbound, separated from him, to a position of righteous before God, justified and completely innocent, was an act of faith. That Abraham believed the thing that God said concerning his descendants. And when he believed it, and God saw that he believed it, in spite of the improbability of it, in spite of how enormous that promise was, in spite of the physical impossibility of that promise, Abraham believed it, and God accounted that to him for righteousness. It was an imputed righteousness. Lajid Zomahi. It was reckoned unto him for righteousness. He didn't, how do you earn it through faith? Well, what did he do? He did nothing. He believed. It was imputed. So, it says then in verse 4, it says, Now to him, now this is to us, here's the application of the principle. Now to him that works, that is, tries to earn God's favor, is the reward not reckoned, it's not lajizomahi, it's not imputed or accounted by grace, but rather it's by debt. Meaning God owes me. God owes me salvation because I lived my life in this way. God owes me salvation because I gave to the church. Because I was a member of the church. Because I taught in the Sunday school. Because I wrestled against my sins and overcame them to the best of my ability most of the time. Better than at least my neighbor did. You know. Now it's by works and God owes me something. God will... Give a person salvation by works if they meet the terms. Do you know what the terms are? Perfection. From birth until death. There's never been a human being aside from the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh that has done that. So to him that works, it's not by grace, but it's by debt. But, verse 5, in contrast, to him that works not, meaning my salvation is not based upon my performance, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. If you're circling, you might as well circle that too and just meditate on it. Justifies the ungodly, meaning taking someone who's a sinner, taking someone who doesn't deserve it, taking someone who is an enemy of God by behavior and by birth and making them innocent, righteous, and pure in God's eyes. He justifies the ungodly by faith. His faith is, and here's the word again, you could circle it, counted for righteousness. Lajidzomahi. Your account goes from delinquent to paid in full. Isn't it amazing that the last words of Jesus on the cross, it was what? It is finished. It's tetelestai. Do you know what it means? Literally, it means paid in full. The last words of Jesus before he gave up the ghost were paid in full. He provided the sum so that I could be counted as righteous. Now, he moves from Abraham as his first and primary example. And now he quotes David in order to give a a supporting witness to the voice of Abraham on things. He says in verse 6, he says, even as David also, 
describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes. There's that word again, lajizomahi, you can circle it. He imputes righteousness without works, saying, and here's David's words now, quoting from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 3, blessed, or oh how happy, are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man into whom the Lord will not, here's the word, it's in the Old Testament, impute sin. Lajidzomahi. Lay it to their account. Now, you know what's amazing about Psalm 32 and why I'm so glad David chose that? I'm, I mean, Paul chose that to quote of David. Because in, in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 3, the word sin is mentioned three times, but a different word is used for sin in all three verses. He uses the word iniquity, that's one word, the word sin, that's a second word, and then the word transgression, that's a third word. And they all mean different things. Iniquity is my sinful condition, my sinful nature, what I am apart from any actions or deeds. It's just my sinfulness. Sins, the word sins, the second word, that's when I try as hard as I can to do what's right and I fail because I'm unable to do it. You know, like a little kid who tries to jump over a puddle and he makes it three quarters of the way. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the idea. I tried and I wanted to, but I, I failed. That's sin. And then the third one is transgression. And transgression means that God draws a line in the sand and said, don't cross that line. And we look God in the face, look at the line, look back up at God in the face, and then take one big step over it. And it's just direct, total disobedience to what we know is wrong. And he uses all three of those words. Blessed is the man. Oh, how happy is the one whose iniquities, whose sins, and whose transgressions are not imputed unto them. It's an impution. Is that a word? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> we, we control the language. The language doesn't control us, right? So he uses the Old Testament to prove his point. That God can give a righteousness that is apart from my earning it. Now the second question that will arise in the mind of his audience or his readers is going to be, well, Abraham was a Jew and he was the father of the Jewish nation. And Ishmael, who was a descendant of Abraham but was not a Jew, was rejected. So does this promise apply only to the Jews, or does this promise also extend beyond the Jewish people and unto the rest of the people that live upon the planet? And so Paul answers that question now in verse 9. He says, cometh this blessedness, or does this blessedness only come upon the circumcision only, the circumcision being the Jews? Or is it for the uncircumcision also? That's everyone else on the planet. For we say that faith was reckoned, there's that word again, lajizomahi, you can circle it, there it is again. For faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. What? <laughs> Listen, if you follow the flow of Abraham's life, the promise and the faith and the righteousness were given in chapter 15 of Genesis. 
it wasn't until years later that God gave to Abraham the sign and the seal of circumcision. What does that mean? It means that when God saved Abraham by faith, Abraham was not a Jew. There was no such thing as a Jew at that time. The covenant and the sign of the covenant that signified and marked the Jews wasn't given until years later. Meaning that even Abraham wasn't Jewish when God saved him by grace through faith. So if God saved Abraham who wasn't a Jew by grace through faith, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the promise isn't just to Abraham and to his descendants. It's to anyone who trusts in God for salvation by impusion. He says in verse 11, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal or a sign of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. He had the faith before he was circumcised. That he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed, there's that word again, lajadzomahi, unto them also. Meaning that the reason why God chose to save Abraham before giving him the covenant of circumcision, the very reason for that sequence was so that you and I would have confidence when we learn about it that circumcision is not necessary in order to be a candidate for salvation. It was the very reason why God declared him righteous first. And then verse 12, that he would be the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, that's the Gentile, that's us, but who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. Notice it doesn't say walk in the steps of the works of Abraham, but rather walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So circumcision, being a Jew, none of that matters at all. What matters completely is faith, and that's it. For the promise, verse 13, as he gives further explanation now, that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise that God gave was not contingent upon works. It was contingent upon faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, then faith is made void and the promise of none effect. Now, there's an important point that Paul's making here, and you've got to understand it, is that grace and faith, that's on one side, and law and works on the other side, that those two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot approach God in both or a combination of the two. He says, if it's of works, it's of works. And if it's of faith, it's of faith. But it is not of, of the two. Because the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Now, we understand that, don't we? Law works wrath. You know what's amazing is to consider, remember when Exodus, uh, uh, when Moses in Exodus came down from the mountain with the tables of stone? Remember? Anybody know uh, off the top of your head how many people died that day because of their sin at the golden calf? 3,000. 3,000 3, 3, people died the day the law came down. 
How many people were saved on the day the Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2? 3,000. 3,000. That's right. 3,000 died when the law came because the law works wrath. And 3,000 lived on the day the Spirit came because the Spirit brings life. You can't combine the two. Because the law works wrath. Where no law is, there is no transgression. If I remove the law, then I remove the sin. That's how, I can, that's how righteousness can be imputed. If I can be taken out from accountability to the law, then my sin can be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith. Righteousness comes by faith. That it might be by grace. To the end that the promise might be sure certain, secure, to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Sometimes people ask and they say, how were people saved in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ? The answer is the same way you and I were. They were saved by grace through faith. They were believing in what God would provide in the future, we believe in what God did provide in the past. And all of human history hinges on that one point in time when Jesus was crucified and then rose again three days later. And all salvation hinges upon that moment, whether it was before it or after it. As it is written, verse 17, I have made you a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickens the dead and calls those things which are not as though they were. Who, concerning Abraham now, against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which is spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his body, now dead, I mean, he was 90 years old and then 100 years old when he finally did you know, get Sarah pregnant. He was, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, who was 90, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, here's what he's saying to you and I, and there's a very direct and important exhortation and word of, of, of uh, instruction in, in what he's saying concerning Abraham right here. He's saying to him this. He's saying, listen, the promise that was given to Abraham, that he would become the heir of the world and that he would have descendants and all that stuff, was an extremely difficult thing to believe because of the fact that he was a hundred years old when he was told that he would sire his first child. And we know we're told that he was now dead. He was past the time when he was virile or able to father a child in his natural ability. It also talks about the unlikelihood of the promise because of the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was past menopause at this point, 90 years old. And beyond the time when she could physically, scientifically conceive. And so this was against human reason, number one. This was against scientific, and here's a clue, or you know, worldly principle or statute or law can't happen. Scientifically, it's impossible. 
It was against everything that Abraham in his mind would think is rational and logical. And yet, in the face of that, it says against hope, he believed in hope. And he staggered not at the promise of God. You say, well, how does that apply to you and me? Listen, the promise of an imputed righteousness is extremely contrary to human reason and natural law. Human reason states, no, 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 you don't get anything that you don't earn. Even if someone gives me a favor in this life, the silent word behind that favor is, okay, I got you in the door, now do something with it. Nobody gives anything or gets anything for free at the end of the day. It's contrary to everything that we know as human beings. And for that reason, it's against our logic to believe that God is going to just give me a righteousness that I don't earn, that I don't deserve, that I didn't do anything to have. It's against human reason, and it's against natural law. And it can be difficult to believe. God, you actually love me. God, you're actually willing to forgive me in spite of all the things that I have done, the things that I'm wrestling with right now, and the sins that I will commit, even in the future that you know about, that I'm ashamed, I'm not even ashamed of yet, because I didn't know, I don't even know I'm going to do them. And you seeing all of that are willing to lay my sin upon your son, who was righteous, and declare me righteous in his place. And when we really start to weigh out the weight and the magnitude of what it costs God and what it means for God to impute righteousness to an individual, it becomes very hard to believe. And yet we are called, as Abraham believed God in the face of something that didn't make sense, we are called to believe what God said and we're to place, listen, the full weight of our trust upon the promise of God of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. For me to begin to think that now that I'm saved... Now I'm going to begin to earn what God and pay back God for what he's given to me is for me to move from a place of faith to now where I'm trusting in my works. Okay, God, you got me in the door through the cross and I'm so thankful for that. And now I'm not going to let you down or God, I'm going to pay you back for it. And we begin to think in some way, well, the faithfulness of my devotional life or the faithfulness to, to share or to fulfill my ministry or calling, or my, my uh, um, commitment to my local church body and to the, uh, to the other believers that I'm around, or my ability to be what I'm supposed to be in my marriage or as a father or as an employee or employer, those things, God, are now going to keep me and be the demonstration of my Christian experience. That's staggering at the promise of God. I'm staggering. It's not enough what Jesus did for me. The cross was not enough. It's the cross plus now everything that I can do. By the way, did you know that it actually in the Book of Mormon says these words? It says that you are saved by grace through faith after all we can do. <laughs> Staggering at the promises of God. It's unreasonable to think that we can just be saved by grace through faith. Abraham. Now, Abraham did stagger with patience, didn't he, <laughs> at seeing things fulfilled. And that's a very real thing that we experience as well, isn't it? 
Because we get saved by grace through faith, and then we struggle with our sins. And we wait for God to remove those sins from us, and we want to be free from those things. And we think, God, when am I going to be set free from this? When am I going to see you come through in this way? Or sometimes we stagger at the patience of waiting for a promise of God to come through concerning something else in our life. Lord, when is this healing going to happen? Or when is the ministry door going to open? Or when are you going to fulfill the thing that you've put in my heart? Or when are you going to bring a wife, right? Or whatever else it is that we, we wait on God for. And so patience can be an issue, but faith cannot. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, because of his faith, verse 22, it was imputed, lajidzomahi, unto him for righteousness. Now, application. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, lajidzomahi, Reckoned, accounted. If, and here's the condition, we believe. If we believe on him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses. Jesus was delivered to the cross to suffering and death for our sin. Let that sink in, fresh and anew, that it was for my sin that Jesus went to the cross, and then he was raised again for our justification. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead was the seal that proved that he really was sinless. And it was necessary in order for me to be saved, for him both to be sinless and for him to suffer. Both of those things had to happen. If he was not sinless, then he died for his own sins. So sinlessness is important. Second, sinlessness plus his death. Because in dying the way that he did, he absorbed the penalty for someone else's sin. He didn't deserve to die, but he did. Meaning it was someone else's sin that was paid for on him. And when he rose again, it proved that he was really sinless And it opened the door for you and I to obtain salvation if we believe. It's by grace through faith. We must stand in the full persuasion that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And there is no boasting. We're not better than someone else. We're not more holy than one the other or than anyone else that has ever lived. We're not less sinless. There is nothing, listen, there is nothing in you or in me that God saw that was of some value over and above someone else, which is the reason why he chose to save you. There is none of that. It is by grace through faith, period. From the first day until the last day. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. I cannot repay it. In any form whatsoever. 
I must stand in the full persuasion that I'm saved by grace through faith. One of the expressions of faith as a Christian now, because, you know, we're here. I trust probably we're, I'm not assuming, but probably we all know the Lord for salvation. We've all made that declaration. But one of the ways now that we walk by faith and that we live by faith even after we've believed is that we, first of all, we don't try to add to what God has already done through our own works or fall into the temptation that now I have to earn it. That doesn't mean I do nothing, but my works and what I do comes out of a response and it comes out of the Holy Spirit's empowering and prompting and compelling me to do the will of God. I'm not earning God's favor by my service and works. I'm responding to God's favor. I'm walking with God in it. I'm serving his purposes and for the reason for which I've been made. And it makes all the difference in the world. And then finally, guys, to walk by faith. Listen, this is so huge, so important in these days. Don't trade, don't ever trade what you know for what you don't know. What do I know? I know that I'm saved by grace through faith. It's perfectly clear, especially, you know, after reading Romans chapter 4, seeing it in Abraham and David from Genesis to Revelation. I know I'm saved by grace through faith. What else do I know? I know that all things are working together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. I know that. What else do I know? I know that I'm kept as the apple of his eye, that he's my shepherd, that not one hair of my head falls to the ground without him knowing it completely. I know that he knows my path, my beginning, my middle, and my end, where I'm going all along the way. I know that he will perfect what concerns me according to what the Bible says. I also know that God is good, that everything he does is good, his decisions are good. I know that what he chooses is absolutely the best, that there's no compromise in God's integrity in what he chooses for my life. These are all things that I know. I also know that the word of God is perfect and true. I know that everything that God says in here can, can, can be stood upon and believed and it's trustworthy and it doesn't fail. So I know all of those things. Now, what don't I know? I don't know why God loves me. I'll never know that. <laughs> I don't know why God loves me. What else don't I know? I don't know why bad things happen to good people. I don't know why bad things happen to me. I don't know why there's setbacks in my life. What else don't I know? I don't know why I haven't obtained victory over certain sins in my life that I've struggled with. I don't know why I haven't obtained the victory, even though I've come to hate some of the things that I do with pure passion, and yet I can't somehow get separated. And I don't know why that is. Why is it that sometimes you see something happen like what we saw happen in Texas last week where someone is allowed under the sovereignty of God to go into a church and do, do what that man did? I don't know why. I don't know why that happens. Why is it that someone who is a Christian, who has put their faith in Christ, can be afflicted, it seems tormented, maybe even demon-possessed, it seems? Why does that happen? I don't know. Why? There's so many whys that we don't know. But listen, to walk by faith means that I never trade what I know 
for what I don't know. Meaning that when the I don't know comes up, it's okay for me to not know. It's okay for me to not understand. But I'm not going to trade what I know. Well, I'm struggling with this and I can't get past it. So therefore, God must not be real. I just traded what I know for what I don't know. I see something that seems in my mind to be a contradiction with something that God said. So God must be false and, and, and not true. No, you've traded now what you know for what you don't know. I've seen a Christian who's demon-possessed. No, you didn't. Because the Bible says that God doesn't share space. That in him is light and there's no darkness at all. So no, you didn't see that. You might think that you saw that, but you're trading what you know for what you don't know. So what's the point? The point is we stand by faith on what we know, on what God has revealed. And the rest we trust him with for him to work it out and iron it out in his way for his reasons in his time. And he works all things together for the good. And here's what we know in finality. Is that when we see him face to face and we're standing before him. And all of human history has unfolded and is completed. And we see everything that has taken place. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And we know what we know at that time. We will look at God our Father and we will say to him, Perfect and true are all your judgments, O Lord. Every single thing that you did, allowed, ordained, waited for, everything you did was perfectly timed and perfectly executed. And if I knew what you knew, I would have done things the exact same way. As confusing as it was at the time. That's faith. We stagger not at the promises of God through unbelief. But against hope, we believe in hope, no matter how contrary it is to human reason or natural law, and we believe God. And the result is it's imputed unto us for righteousness. Amen?